Just something about that old-time gospel stuff, isn't it? Good job, Quartet. Now, I am, I am informed that I need to warn you before I get started. So fair warning here. Underneath one of the pews, I'm not going to tell you which, I placed a packet of big, hairy spiders. I mean, the ugly ones with the fangs like this, and I am letting them loose at the middle of the service. Nobody's believing it, are they? First service didn't buy it either. Yeah, no, I don't even like spiders. I mean, I know they play a vital role in our ecosystem. I just don't want them in my house. You know, I, I, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not into the big hairy spider thing. There's no hairy spiders under your... There's no hair on the spider. No, it's... <laughs> no spiders that I place there, at least. If they're there, they're there naturally. So... I could tell none of you believed. You didn't even have to say anything. You want to know how I know? Nobody got up. <laughs> Nobody looked. You know, so I, does anybody in here actually like spiders? I mean, maybe there's some, but yeah, well, you would, Will. But no, it's, uh, I, the, yeah, it's m- most folks not into the spider thing. So, you know, if you actually thought there'd be big hairy spiders released, yeah, you'd be out of here. You don't believe it. So you did nothing about it. If we don't believe something, we don't let it affect us. It just rolls right off of us. Just, you know, okay, whatever. You know, get lost, dude. But the reverse is also true. If you do believe, it's going to change your actions. It's going to have an effect. You're going to do something. If you think that wearing your seatbelt really will save your life, what happens when you get in the car? Click. If you believe a type of food is hazardous, that, you know, diet cola really will rot you from the inside, what do you do? You don't eat or drink it. If you really believe it, it does something. You act. And likewise, if we believe in Christ, we are going to obey him. If we really truly believe Jesus is the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except by Him. If we believe that if we really love Him, we will obey His commands, we are going to do what He says. But if we don't believe that, we won't. That's why I'm always kind of amused when Christians just get all uh, huffy puff and whatnot when they're like, these non-Christians, do you know what they're doing? (laughs) Let me guess, they're doing non-Christian things. Yes! Imagine that. Non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians. They don't believe they're not going to do it. But there's a little bit of a problem here. Because sometimes those who profess to belong to God will ignore what God says. Those who claim to belong to Christ won't do what Jesus says. Which means there's there's a disconnect there. Now in the book of Romans, we learn that we are saved by our belief in Christ. Not by our actions. There is not one thing we, any one of us in here, can do to earn our salvation. You know, we are not born, and then we receive a message from God with a quest. Bring me the grail. Or maybe bring me a shrubbery. I don't know. You know, you, 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 the Lord doesn't look at us and say, do this and you'll be saved. No. Only the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to forgive our sins and save us. There's something to be done to forgive us. Jesus did it. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. 
We believe and we're saved, but there's an issue here because sometimes we think that belief is a mental activity, that it's purely cerebral. We believe we're saved, that's the end of it, right? We don't need to do anything. So sometimes we don't. So to correct this problem, we find the book of James. James is kind of a controversial book throughout church history. Martin Luther didn't like it at all. He would have thrown it out of the Bible if he could because he thought it contradicted Romans. It doesn't contradict Romans. It actually complements it, and we'll talk about why that is later on. Now, James, even though it's kind of placed toward the end of the New Testament, it's actually what might be the earliest New Testament book written. Even maybe even written before the Gospels, because it's written to a Jewish audience, which means at the time the church was predominantly Jewish, which would have placed it probably in the first 10 to 15 years of the church's existence. We're talking between the years of 30 and 45 here. And the references in the book are entirely Jewish in, nature, in, in, in their nature. So you know, as, as James is writing, he's writing to Jewish people, not to Gentiles who kind of had an inkling about Judaism. He's writing to Jews who believed in Jesus. Now which James is it? There's four James mentioned in the New Testament, but we think this was written by James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. Now, some think that uh, uh, Joseph was a son of, or jo- James was a son of Joseph by an earlier marriage than Mary. There's no evidence for that. That that is believed because they're trying to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary; that she was always a virgin. There's no in- indication of that. She was a virgin when she had Christ, and then her and Joseph had other children together. So that would make James Jesus' half-brother, or brother, if you know, depending on how you want to put it, you know, raised in the same household, brother, or maybe half-brother, what, different fathers? No, shark attack, no. It's, uh, Jesus was... Uh, Obviously conceived by the Holy Spirit, but then you had James. There were other brothers and sisters that we know of that were mentioned in the Gospels. But James also was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, when the Gentiles started to come into the church, James is one of the leaders of the church, and they, the, the church has a conference, and then he drafts a letter, a letter that's contained in the book of Acts, and the language there is very similar to this book. So, Which James is this? Probably James' brother, Jesus. And this this book of James, it is an intensely practical book. He challenges Christians. I mean, it is not possible to read the book of James and not feel critiqued. Some people really like it when the preacher steps on their toes on Sunday morning. Some people get offended if it seems like it applies to them. Man, if you don't like something that applies to you, today is not your day. Because when we look at the gospel or at the book of James, and he's addressing these early Christians, man, it feels like he is reaching through the ages to point a finger straight at us. Where the situations may be a little different, but the teachings are spot on. 
Because this book directly addresses the disconnect between belief and action. We say we believe, and James looks at us and says, really? Let's see the receipts. We learn that belief and action are not as, dis- are not as separate as we might have thought. We come to Jesus, we believe, and that may be it. And James has some harsh words for us in chapters 1 and 2. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who, intently, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Then we go into verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. He's got some strong language for us here. You see this? And I mean, it's almost an accusatory tone. Because sometimes what we run into in Christianity is our faith becomes a passive faith. A faith that doesn't do much. And what James addresses us, and he tells us point blank, passive faith is no faith at all. In chapter 1, he's pointing out that our faith needs to result in action. And he's got rough things about, to say about those whose faith never goes from their head to their hands. Nowadays, man, it, you know, can you, do you remember what it was like back in the days when we actually had to turn on a TV to check the weather? I mean, now you just whip out the phone, pull up the app. Okay, it's going to rain in an hour. How many of you have... Maybe in the morning, you're trying to figure out what you're going to wear for the day, so you bring up the phone, check the weather, put it down, walk into the closet, and you have no idea what you just looked at. See a few nods, yeah, this is hitting home for a few of you, yeah, done it this week. More than once, yeah. So, yeah, it, I mean, this happens. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you see that and it doesn't click. And that's kind of how James is likening this to. He talks about a guy who looks at himself in the mirror, stares at himself, looks at himself really intently and walks away, doesn't know what he looks like. Not somebody we would expect to be winning a Nobel Prize in physics, is it? That's what we're like when we believe, but we don't act. We see something, we claim that it matters, and then the moment we turn around, it's gone. If we say we believe and we don't act, then that which we have claimed, just claimed to believe evaporates in a drastic lack of action. 
says that's what we're like. And then he says, if, you're, you know, if, if your religion means anything to you. Now, sometimes you may have seen people, I see this posted on Facebook all the time. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And it sounds nice, but if you look at James, James sure thinks it's a religion. And I'll tell you, we have a God, we have a salvation, we have a story that brings meaning to existence. It's a, there's a code of behavior. Man, Christianity checks all the boxes for a religion. We get a relationship, to be sure. Still a religion. But what he's trying to say to us is, if, you're, if what you believe, if all of this stuff about God and Jesus and everything else, if that means anything to you, it's going to have an effect on what you do. And he describes it as taking care of widows and orphans, keeping oneself unstained by the world. There's things that we do for internal righteousness and external works. Sometimes if we can be accused of anything on the conservative end of Christianity, we can be, con be accused of we put a lot of emphasis on the internal righteousness, not a whole lot of emphasis on the external stuff. Unfortunately, that critique can hit home a little more than we might care to notice. But sometimes I'll look at what we're doing. We just had a missions meeting. If you look over some of the missions we support, we got children's homes. We got things like that. We're, hey, we're, we're doing a lot of this. It's not always direct. But friends, what, I'm, what James is telling us and what we need to recognize is it's not just a matter of us being transformed internally. It's a matter of our actions also being transformed. He says we can be worthless or we can be worthy. And our beliefs are worthless if we can't control ourselves. And he goes on from there, talks about the tongue. And, you know, there's passages in James. Now, I'll warn you, if you read through James and you're trying to outline it, it's going to be frustrating because he'll talk about something and then come back to it later on. This isn't like trying to... Like trying to to outline Romans or the letters to the Corinthians. Paul is easy to outline. He is like Mr. Concrete Sequential Thought. A, B, C. You know, I mean, perfect for outlining. James, James is very Old Testament in his thinking, which means he goes around, talk, looks at a bunch of things, and then revisits all the topics. And you're like, wait a minute. Where does this go? And you got arrows drawn all over the place, and your outline's a mess. So I'll warn you, you read James, he's going to mention something, then come back to it later on, and then come back to it again. But he uses that example of the tongue, even though, even though he'll come back to it. He points out, we got to control ourselves, even control our speech, because the tongue is a symptom of a larger problem. But he's doing that to point out that if our beliefs don't change our actions, our beliefs will mean not, must mean nothing to us. If you talk to somebody and they say they believe something, but they're not taking any action in that direction. I believe I need to save for retirement. Really? How much are you putting aside? Nothing. Well, 
Must not believe real hard. Or if you were talking to somebody wearing a Cubs jersey, what's your favorite team? The Cardinals. You're not right in the head, are you? Your thought and action needs to be unified. But he says if our beliefs drive us to act, if we obey our God, then our beliefs are worthy. What it, it, it comes down to it later on that what's the point if we claim to have faith but we have no evidence of faith? If we say we believe but we never do what we believe, do we believe? Years ago when I was in... Uh, youth group growing up, they, there was a saying that came around, and it was trite, but there was a point to it. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? You know, and we, they would kind of drive this home with, you know, okay, if it became illegal to be a Christian, you were dragged in front of a judge, do you go to church? No. Not, much, not often. Do you give anything to the church? No, never. You read your Bible? Nope. I don't even know where it is. But you say you're a Christian. Yeah, what, where's the proof? If someone could watch you for a week, would there actually be evidence? And James even gives us a frightening point. We talk about belief in God as though it's significant. It matters. But do you know who has the strongest belief in God? I mean, short of, of you know, God, his spirit, his son, you know who has the next strongest belief in him? Satan. I guarantee you the devil and his demons believe in God much more firmly than every other human every human or every, every than any human all of them put together. Satan knows God exists. He is absolutely 100% certain that God sits on his throne. He has talked with him. What good does that belief do Satan? Because he still rebels. He still fights back. So sometimes we humans, we say, oh, I believe in God, as though it means something. James looks at us and says, so do the demons. You've got just as much faith as a demon. And maybe at that point we need to reevaluate a thing or two. See, Satan knows for sure that God is real. He, knows he is absolutely certain that Jesus is the Son of God, that he gave himself for us, that he rose from the dead. Satan doesn't even need faith in that. He saw it happen. He knows what it meant. But it does him no good because, as, as James points out, faith without works is dead. We are saved by faith, but faith will evidence itself in tangible ways. It's going to matter. You're going to see some evidence of it somewhere. Our problem is it's way too easy to have a passive, a dead faith. And so for the solution to our problem, James turns to Abraham. 
He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's interesting here because the one that James brings up to show us Righteousness evidenced by works, faith put to work, is the exact same one that Paul brings up to show righteousness through faith. We see that faith put into action by the father of the faithful, Abraham. Friends, this is why James doesn't contradict Romans. Instead, he compliments the book of Romans. Our actions are not in opposition to our faith, but they come from our faith. We're not saved by our actions. That belief and salvation come first, but that belief also gives birth to works. We are not, we don't earn our salvation by what we do, but we show we are saved by what we do. Works are necessary, friends, but they don't lead the train. But they will be there. Our faith comes first, our actions second, but actions still come. And he points out how Abraham believed God. This is evidenced in what he did. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, you go to a place that I will show you, and you're going to have a ton of descendants. What happens? Abraham packs his stuff and he goes. He doesn't sit back in his easy chair in his tent and say, huh, God's going to bless me. No, his belief, his faith in God is put to work. And later he offers Isaac. That wasn't blind faith. In Hebrews 11, we learn that he believed that God would give his son back. He believed, he believed so much, he obeyed. Saw a cartoon this week. It was Abraham and Isaac standing on each side of the altar. And Abraham's, or Isaac's saying, where's, where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham said, God will provide, Isaac. Isaac said, wait a minute, I'm not going anywhere until you put a comma in there. Because there's a difference between Abraham will provide Isaac, and Abraham, or God will provide Isaac, and God will provide Isaac. If you need help with that, we have English teachers up here. They will be happy to work with you after the service. <sighs> Punctuation saves lives, you know. That's the difference between let's eat grandma and let's eat grandma. Yeah. Okay, I see some smiles. Y'all ain't entirely asleep. Abraham believed and he did. And then he, point, he brings up Rahab. And Rahab, you know, I've said before, Rahab's one of the most interesting characters in the Bible to me. Because by the time the spies get to Rahab, they're in the city of Jericho. 
It is 40 years since the Israelites left Egypt, 40 years since the plagues, 40 years since the Red Sea. And all during that 40 years, the Israelites had grumbled, they had complained, they had been disobedient to God. But the spies, when they speak to Rahab, Rahab, and she's probably in her early 20s at the latest, talking about things that happened when her parents were young. She says, we know what your God did to the Egyptians. We know what has happened, and we have been absolutely terrified because we know you're coming this way, and your God is with you. Oh, she believes. She believes that God is acting on behalf of his people, and what she do? She commits an act of treason, hiding the spies and sending them off and sending the pursuit in a different way. That's death sentence level stuff, folks. Based on things that she knew that God had done and she believed more strongly than the actual people of God who had seen it happen. They had lived through the plagues. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the manna. They drank the water from the rock. They heard the voice of God. But Rahab believed more. How do we know? She acted. She did something. She committed treason. Friends, when we believe, it will affect what we do. If we believe all this stuff about Jesus, if we believe about sin and forgiveness and heaven and hell, that is going to shape our actions. We can't help but have it do that. We're not going to say one thing and do another. Say one thing and do another. We're not going to make, to to mouth the words when we sing songs at church on Sunday morning, and then once the service is over, immediately begin grumbling and complaining and stirring pots. Friends, if we believe, we're going to act. Are your actions giving evidence of your belief? If not, it's time for a change. Now I'll tell you, we're not always going to be perfect about it. We all fail, every last one of us. And we look back like, well, that wasn't one of my better days. That's going to happen. But I'll tell you, this change by which we live out what we say we believe, it doesn't happen by itself. It's only going to occur because you make it happen. God's spirit is within you. He's transforming you. It'll help, but ultimately it's on you. You get to decide, are you going to grieve the spirit or be shaped by the spirit? When James accuses us of things and this stuff starts to land, do we get our backs up? I don't like what the preacher's saying today. (coughs) He's meddling a little bit too much. Folks, it's not me, it's it's James, the brother of Jesus. He probably knew a thing or two. You've definitely seen a thing or two. What are we going to do? Do we yield to the Spirit or do we fight it? We need to check ourselves, be willing to face the hard answers, to do something about them. And James goes into specific areas of action. We're not going to look at each one of them, but he talks about speech. He talks about showing favoritism. He talks about wisdom and disunity. But all of them come back to the exact same root. 
our actions need to match our beliefs. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that we are saved by following him, then we're going to have to control ourselves, even down to that annoying little muscle we call the tongue. We're going to have to treat each other properly. Not showing favoritism to this person or that person. And so on and so forth. And simply put, friends, our actions will evidence the quality of our faith in Christ. If there's a lack of Christian works, it's going to show a faith that is weak if it's even present at all. You may have been going to church for decades. I really hope it's showing. Now, you may be better than you were. You may have been really nasty years ago. But we got to be honest with ourselves. Is God working in us or are we fighting him all the way down? The rubber of the gospel, friends, will meet the road of life in what we do. Funny thing, you know, you go out, you get in your car. I don't know if you bought a high-powered car that you you like to drive fast or something more sedate because you want to save fuel. Doesn't matter what you have. Every single thing in that car from the accelerator, the steering wheel, the brake pedal, it all goes through the tires. You let those tires get worn. I don't care if you got 8,000 horsepower under the hood. You're not going real fast. I don't care if you bought the nicest, cutest little Porsche money can buy. It's not going to handle real well if you bought the cheapo tires. Everything goes through there. Friends, if you're going to be a Christian... You're going to follow Jesus. Everything about following Jesus becomes evidenced in what we do, in how we treat each other. The New Testament keeps coming back to this. And James is telling these Christians, he's telling us to act like we believe in Christ. Not just flip that switch in our minds and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But make sure it actually has some benefit in this world by what we do. If our faith is truly strong, those around us will be able to tell without even us saying anything about it. They're going to notice. Friends, we are called to follow Jesus in heart and in deed. When Jesus is asked, what's the most important command? Jesus says, well, you really got two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second's a lot like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some of it is that internal mind and heart stuff. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, your soul. The internal stuff. But then it translates into what we do with all your strength. With every muscle in your body. With every action you perform. And you are loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's something that can only be done externally, friends. As James says, hey, if you've got a Christian brother or sister, they're, they're hungry, they're cold, and you're just like, well, may God bless thee on the road of life. 
and you don't run them over to Walmart and buy them a few bags of groceries or a coat, he says, what good is your faith? Well, we say we believe. Does that evidence in the way we talk to each other, in the way we build each other up, in the way we interact with each other? James calls us to honesty and humility, to unite our actions with our beliefs, to be a follower of Jesus in every possible way. (laughs) James gets up in our face, friends. I think he does it because we need it. It is a sobering call to wake up and get it right. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message that you've given us. We praise you because, Father, you have saved us. You have redeemed us in your Son. You have given us your Spirit. But, Lord, now you want us to do, not just to believe, but to translate that belief into action. Lord, help us. Convict us of our sin when we fail. Direct our paths that we can do this right so we can love one another and do so completely and truly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.